1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Jean Lynn to tell us all about her book published by Columbia University Press in 2023, titled A Smart A Spark. In the Smokestacks, Environmental Organizing in Beijing Middle-Class Communities, which is really interesting. Um, It focuses on Beijing, China, and a bunch of things that kind of come together, right? Um, The pollution that is often read about um, and environmental issues more broadly. And the massive expansion in housing and home ownership, as well as community organizing and protest. Um, And somehow all these things all come together in this really interesting way uh, in this book about Beijing, but also about a lot more than that. So, Jean, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me today. Um, Yeah, so... um... I'll get started and maybe introduce myself a little bit first, and I can also maybe go over a little bit why I decided to write this book, um, other than it being a dissertation originally. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm a assistant professor currently at Cal State um, University, East Bay. Um, I completed my uh, PhD at the University of Chicago in sociology, and then I did a postdoc at Stanford, um, Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society, prior to this. Um, I wanted to write this book because I thought it was really important to bring attention to the study of urban communities outside of the U.S. context and outside of a democratic context. There are a lot of in-depth ethnographies of American communities in Chicago and Boston. And I I feel like these engaging portrayals of Chinese communities are pretty rare, and particularly focusing on critical uh, critical junctures of urban transformation. And so my approach when writing this book is really uh, hoping to place findings in broader literature on community mobilization and and democracies um, in the u.s and elsewhere and also highlighting these familiar democratic processes to readers who are less familiar with associational life in a china setting i also feel that in the field of sociology where Ethnographies are predominantly U.S.-based. I hope that this book provides some insights on how leadership, how housing grievances, and collective action are navigated from the perspectives of citizens in an authoritarian political system. Um, But still, it's like they're going through these changes that are really relatable and familiar. um, These periods of urban change, specifically, and I believe this really adds a much needed diversification to urban sociology case studies. I think for um, Sinologists and contentious politics in China are not really a new phenomenon. I mean, Social protests do happen. Um, but I think on the other hand, for social movement scholars, um, sometimes repression or not repression has a tendency to become a centrally discussed outcome of a social movement whenever we mention authoritarian regimes. Um, One of the funny things is when I presented what is now kind of this citizen science um, chapter at a social movements conference a few years back, um, to my surprise, I was placed on a panel that was titled Authoritarian Repression. Um, And that was very curious to me because in, in my mind, it was not about repression at all. And so um, I really wanted to focus on the story of citizen learning and the cultivation of civic life in the context of urban change. Um, And um, I think this can be really easily overlooked in an authoritarian setting. So the book focuses on bringing these aspects to life. um, And then I think finally, Another reason I wanted to write the book in this way is as an assistant professor of a public university, I teach a lot of undergrad students of urban and public sociology who are deeply interested in community change, but might not know so much about Beijing. So I really aspire for the examples and writing to be approachable. And I do believe that this academic content can be read by really a wide range of audiences.
0: Brilliant. Thank you for such a great introduction to many of the themes and threads of the book. I'd like to start off asking you about one of them that you've just mentioned, um, the urban change aspect, because I think that in a lot of ways that is one of the more relatable parts to a lot of people, but also one of the less understood parts about how China operates today. So can you give us a brief overview of housing reforms in China so that we can understand kind of who are these middle class homeowners in Beijing and how did they come to be homeowners? Mm -hmm.
1: So cities across China began implementing housing reforms in the 1980s in a really profoundly restructure the known way of life for urban residents. Prior to these reforms, urban housing was provided mainly by work units or the downway, In simply put, the workplace. Um, Urban residents really rarely encountered neighborhood amenities or really conceived of social responsibility outside of their work unit. Their sense of belonging centered on the work unit rather than on the homes that they lived in or a neighborhood even. After all, they didn't own their housing at the time. So residents, urban residents, were very much organized by occupation, they lived in spaces regulated by state-owned enterprises and local governments. Um, things like healthcare, education, employment were all provided by the workplace. Um, work unit residents also had very little control over the quality of their housing and home ownership was not possible as an ordinary system, uh, ordinary citizen under the downway system. Um, urban lives looked similar for most people at the time. There's differences in social classes, um, uh, differences in social class based on housing or lifestyle were not really discernible. Now, housing reforms then led to the, the kind of the abolition of the work unit housing system in 1998. And that brought about about two really significant changes. One is um, work unit, housing were kind of sold off at discounted prices to existing residents. Um, A lot of times uh, we refer to these housing areas as old neighborhoods within a city. Um, And the second significant change was housing privatization started with the construction of new commercial housing complexes. Um, And oftentimes we refer to these areas as new neighborhoods in the urban city. Um, with rapid economic development in the 1990s, um, that a well, a more well-off or affluent stratum of society gradually emerged, which many China scholars refer to as the middle class broadly defined. Um, urban residents certainly had increasing purchasing power, the ability to acquire and accumulate wealth, and the possibility of affording housing in new neighborhoods that were just mushrooming across Chinese cities. Um, and I think for the first time since 1949, a significant segment of the ur- urban population became homeowners. I think the stats are in 2001, 65% people were homeowners, going to about 74% in 2003, and in 2006, hitting around 82%, which is kind of the time frame that um, this study started in. Um, I would say that kind of the, the early 2000s, it's a unique time to observe um, urban China because of this massive wave of housing commercialization. And the scope of this urban transformation in Beijing is it's staggering. Um, thousands. It's, if you think about it, thousands of new homeowners moved into the hundreds of new gated communities in the same city around the same time. Uh, For the first time, they were moving into these communities as strangers with no work affiliations, with housing and social services no longer provided for them. And so these economic and urbanization developments resulted not only in shifts in housing, but also really a drastic change in people's way of life. Um, And property ownership, for the first time ever, also placed agency into the hands of urban residents. Um, Housing matters, everyday needs were now in their control rather than that of the government.
0: So that's, as you said, the scale of this and not even just the scale, but the amount of change and then multiplied by the scale is quite a lot going on here. So now that we have that big picture, can we narrow down to kind of which homeowners we're looking at within this? can you introduce us to the three community sites that you focus on in the book and explain how you, out of all of that change, narrowed it down to these three?
1: Right. Yes. So I'll talk a little bit about um, that. So there's an environmental focus and I'll talk a little bit about this environmental focus and then I'll break down the communities a little bit. Um, So I would say around the same time period that this housing wave was happening, there were instances of struggles against incinerator construction around that period of time as well. There were about a dozen kind of in the first 10 years in in the 2000s. Um, During that time, about three of these anti-incinerator construction um, struggles were located in Beijing. Um, At the time, I selected Beijing as the city of focus for these case studies based on the similarities in these spatial setups like these homeowner communities were gated communities Um, i selected these based on social class as well all of them kind of identified as middle class and um, they had similar similar mobilizing potentials as well Um, very active associational life they had these community leaders that were emerging um, from these housing complexes and then finally with these three communities or cases I selected, they also had really interesting varying consequences of their anti-incinerator protests. So um, across the three, just very briefly, um, one received a little bit more government acceptance, um, ended up with uh, their incinerator actually relocating. Another faced a lot of government repression with the incinerator being built. Um, The third instance um, is not pure repression, but there was some cooptation going on with the government um, and the incinerator also ultimately being built. So kind of within the same city, in the same time frame, there were three different um, incinerators that were being constructed and kind of with these varying consequences. Um, So um, these three instances of anti-incinerator organizing targeted three separate incinerator construction projects. And so this really, I think, is a, a very interesting highlight of the urban trash issue in Beijing uh, around like 2005 and 2006 and so i think the easiest way to kind of remember the communities in the book is i kind of color coded them so there's a color coding symbolism of the names that were chosen to represent the communities so um, there were these three neighboring communities meadow willow and pine uh, and i refer to them kind of as the green light communities in which environmental organizing really moves steadily forward and achieved the most success um Within these three co-located communities, representatives and leaders, community representatives um, were more inclusive and more effective in engaging the majority of homeowners to make sense of environmental problems, to strategize protest actions and collect citizen science data later on. And because of their approach, um, collective organizing against incinerator construction was sustained over a period of several years Um, resulting not only in the relocation of the planned incinerator, but also in the establishment of a more durable environmental organization that continued to tackle other pollution issues in the neighborhood. Now, The second community of focus um, is Community Rose, which I refer to as the red light community case, um, in which organizing progress stopped short because of a lack of community cohesion during protest. um, And they also faced a higher degree of government repression due to their initial tactics. And finally, we have Community Marigold, which is a yellow light community, It was a little bit harder to classify as either a thriving case or a failing case. But um, in this instance, the most active community leader was co-opted by the government to publicly represent community environmental interests. Um, The leader did continue to advocate for improved environmental practices, but did so primarily as an individual government partner and business owner, rather than as a community leader bringing together fellow homeowners
0: great thank you for introducing us to the nicely color-coded communities that we can now discuss so in that um, as you said the environmental focus and you told us a little bit about sort of incinerators and um, rubbish and issues around that is there anything further we need to understand about the problem that the homeowners in these three communities were organizing against
1: so when these homeowners moved into their homes um in the early 2000s there was actually there were actually existing landfills near their communities already um when they were moving in and this is across all three communities um there were existing landfills nearby it, when they were moving in the landfills were fairly new and weren't really uh, smelling bad yet and so they moved in not knowing that the landfills were nearby And kind of in in short, a couple of years after that, they kind of caught wind of incinerator construction plans from the government um, in in different ways. Um, And so that's kind of the broad uh, what's going on scenario. So they purchased their properties without knowing the landfill was there. Like this sounds really strange to think about that like nowadays, right? Like how how did you buy this home and not know? But purchasing one of these, homes at the time didn't really involve visiting the site. Um a lot of gated communities were really still very much under construction and um a lot of residents at the time other than confirming that the school district was good and hearing for developers that the area had good winds and good water. Um all the homeowners I spoke with like really learned very little about the area before moving in. And at that time also they weren't they had not benefited from the more widespread prevalence of online mapping. When I started field work in Beijing in 2009, neither Google Maps nor the local Baidu maps were reliable. And these buildings and residential complexes were popping up so quickly across the city in the early 2000s that mapping technology was really struggling to catch up. Um, and so they all of them encountered a smelly landfill surprise soon after moving in, followed by unannounced um, incinerator construction, um, kind of in the middle of like around two thousand and five, two thousand and six. These were in three separate parts of the city, so three landfills, three separate plans for incinerator construction. And these environmental threats really, I mean, in some way, there were really stains on this like rising trend of middle-class accomplishment and wealth accumulation and this improved quality of life they were finally experiencing. And so dis- despite finally achieving this homeowner status, these new middle-class residents couldn't escape landfills and incinerators in their backyards. Um, and urban trash problems were getting to a point that, it was so bad that one of the homeowners later described the situation to me as they can't really have, they don't really have a choice of being able to move anywhere else in the city because incinerators were just following us everywhere.
0: The- description of kind of what it was like on a hot summer's day that you include in the book was incredibly evocative. I could see why it would be very hard to ignore and why homeowners would be very motivated to do something about it. Um, Now, of course, we might expect, or going back to the assumptions you talked about facing at the beginning, that, well, what can you do about it, especially somewhere like China, where protest is maybe means something different than in a democratic um, country where kind of assumptions about, well, what can you do? The list of options might look different. You talk about in the book that one of the reasons environmental protest is so interesting to study and so important to study is because environmental protests are in some ways, quote, a special case within a special case. Why? Uh
1: Yes. So, it's a special case within a special case because it this these communities reflect the confluence of um, environmental awareness and uh, middle class homeowner identity so these are both things It's not just environmental protests because i mean there's quite a few of them in china um, but at the same time they are environmental protests um, by homeowners in china so that becomes a little bit little bit more special this way and so um, incinerator protests to kind of give a larger context of kind of these environmental protest trends um, the incinerator protests really in these communities reflect a larger trend of um, environmental resistance in China that coincides with rapid urbanization across cities and so of all the mass protests that mobilized ten thousand or more participants in china between 2000 and 2013 um stats show that more than half were documented as environmental incidents although most are small and quickly dispersed and very very few actually evolve into larger scale mobilizations or protests Um, and at the time if we're thinking about like factory pollution Based on my estimates, at least two dozen specifically middle class protests against factory pollution or construction projects involving several hundred people were documented by the Chinese media between 2006 and 2014. So one of the cases that um, I think a lot of people may have heard of was the anti-PX protest in Xiamen, which is in southern China in 2007, where construction for a chemical plant had started without local residents being notified. At the time, city officials claimed that environmental evaluations by an expert panel had been completed before the project was greenlighted, but uh, that... Incidentally triggered large scale street protests, primarily um, of urban middle class residents and white collar workers. Um, and this was documented in various media outlets. Um, and I would say over the next decade, very similar anti PX protests erupted across like other Chinese cities as well. Um, although Uh, Mass collective action on environmental issues is still pretty rare in China. It really does have the distinctive feature of being generally tolerated by the state. Uh, Environmental grievances are among the more permissible issues for collective action in the view of the Chinese government, as opposed to a human rights violations, protests or religious demonstration, etc., which they're perceived as problematically political. While environmental collective action can also be political in nature, the state is rarely its direct um, target. Environmental protesters are more likely to focus on construction companies, management companies, or even lower levels of government rather than on central authorities. And because of this relative tolerance, in contrast to other types of protests that are denied media coverage, environmental protest events sometimes escape censorship. Um, And then in particular, the trash problem is one of the many environmental issues China has begun to confront more directly over the past three decades. And because the central government has focused its environmental efforts on problems arising with rapid urbanization, citizen protests can sometimes align with government environmental initiatives. So, as a result, despite official reluctance to recognize protests in the media, environmental organizing provides this unique opportunity for Chinese citizens not only to form these associational bonds with one another, but also to mobilize for collective action with less likelihood of state interference compared to other types of protests.
0: Mm. Now no, That's sec- helpful to understand. Sorry, please go on.
1: Oh, no, no, not at all. So the other piece of this special case is the middle class organizing part um, and specifically middle class homeowner organizing. Um, The anti-PX factory protests I mentioned earlier didn't really originate in residential communities. Um, Rather, in some cases, although uh, protesters were middle class, information was um, circulated a lot of times predominantly by opinion leaders, scientists, and public intellectuals. In other cases, these anti-PX protests were documented as protesters from backgrounds um, that were lower socioeconomic status, including rural farmers, etc. Um, the three anti-incinerator protests in this book, in contrast, features they share more features with a NIMBY protest, or not in my backyard, movements um, in, in the U.S., in which homeowners resist land development or construction projects in their neighborhoods specifically and if we kind of are examining the experiences of um, homeowners in these three gated communities you really um, it really reveals that a sense of collective identity was a precondition for environmental action so It's important to note that NIMBY protests aren't just location-based, like they're the same neighborhood. They're also made possible by these strong place-based identities. Um, The experiences of these communities then offer a glimpse into the process of this place-based identity formation, or what I like to refer to as a process of becoming homeowners and neighbors. And so when finally faced with the landfill stench in the first few years of living in their new communities, homeowners didn't really have the civic capacity to mobilize for collective action yet. But three years down the road, however, owing to the connections they established and the skills they developed in their homeowners communities, organizing them became a possibility when they heard of the incinerator construction plans.
0: So it's that last point I'd love to ask you more about as my next question. How did that change happen? How did associational life, sort of informal and informal ways, how is that cultivated in these communities?
1: Mm-hmm. So there's a, a couple, I'll talk a little bit about oh, kind of like what, what the, what associational life is, first of all, and then I'll talk about how it kind of unraveled in these, uh, uh, how the, the process carried out in these communities. So, um, Again, I want to bring attention. Remember, this is they were all starting from zero moving into these communities. They mostly moved in around the same time. So we think new homeowners, new interactions beginning in online spaces, offline spaces. You're really these are the kind of the natural environments for us to really track the birth of associational life in these in these places. So um, Gated housing communities really created this unique spatial arrangement in urban areas. They're middle class spaces where homeowners could foster a sense of collective identity that's like tied to these spaces. And um, within these new residential communities, middle-class residents in urban, urban Beijing had the new experience of forming social associations. Um, and Some examples are soccer leagues, like karaoke groups, bird watching clubs. The civic infrastructure within these communities, which is the, the constellation of informal associations, shared spaces, the communal life and social bond, bonds that weave through them, provided definitely more than recreation and the way we can think about it is um, the collective benefit isn't really the specific end product of participating in a specific activity whether it's store scoring in a bowling league or learning drills on a basketball team or even improving local policies through a neighborhood environmental committee it's more about the effect of how participation occurs so within a housing community um, things like message board debates after work, tra- karaoke's trip to a scenic area after a community meeting. All of these things, they create these feelings of connectedness, belonging and shared roots. It can be the parking lot, the shared community courtyards where people find unexpected forms of material, social and emotional support. And by convening regularly, these dense networks of caring are, are forged and people meet um others to whom they can turn to in times of need. Um, and so in within the community, the, the way that these interactions started is there were these homeowners' forums that were mostly online. And um while these conversations around community issues were occurring online, there were also these in-person interactions as well. And so homeowners forums, um, online forums, or even any type of internet mobilization, it's not really new in terms of focus. But I think when we talk about online mobilizations and online conversations, there's something that's missing from these types of discussions, is kind of how and why these specific online forums can be affected. And um, The success of an online community space in these communities in particular, it's made possible not only by the platform that's online, but also by the social capital and civic infrastructure that are created and reinforced offline as well, that is in the communities themselves. So without the trust and reciprocity established in these physical spaces and the physical presence of community leaders, the virtual space would also lack lack effectiveness and so these online networks are made meaningful by an offline in-person community infrastructure networks and shared spaces. I like to use the example of like the COVID nineteen pandemic as well. We were a lot of times not a lot of times, excuse me, but the pandemic has demonstrated that schools and community or organizations were able to pivot activities and services to online spaces. They were able to do so because of pre existing in person relationships that they had previously, and so offline communities um, reinforce online spaces and then online spaces also facilitate these offline interactions as well. So um, just a couple of kind of quick notes about the forum that was really Like essential to mobilization and organizing. So, um, these homeowners' forums um, used by homeowners in the early 2000s were hosted on this platform that was run by a private internet company. Um, Visually, these forums are kind of organized as discussion threads, they're comparable to a pretty common internet, like thread, uh, like uh, internet groups and forums and bulletin boards. And so the platform also has this chat function um, that uh, homeowners can converse on. In addition to providing a virtual community space for homeowners, these forums are also infrastructures of community information. So um, some of these forums serve the function of a community newsletter with homeowners regularly posting community related information or updates. Forums can also act as sources of local news for homeowners in a context where the mainstream media face censorship, so amplifying news from outside community gates that might be relevant to homeowners but not featured um, prominently in official sources of news. And these forums are also places where These networks of care and support are forged and where mobilizing and organizing occur and where collective sense making happens when homeowners are faced with new challenges or new threats. Um, And I think, sorry, one more thing I do want to bring to attention is all right, so all these informal and formal aspects of associational life there. There are so many informal groups happening on the forums, these little events that people hold, like why do these informal actions or informal groups matter? And I think it's really important to kind of think about these little actions and these little mundane activities. Um, Participating in a soccer team, for example, offers a free space in which Neighborly camaraderie can develop, right? Ideas can be discussed, shared interests can flourish, and it's a foundation where, like, upon which social cohesion can be built. And a lot of seemingly mundane group events, like a bake sale or a group hike, might gain movement-style political uh, claims later on. A bake sale can raise funds for a social cause. A group hike can be combined with raising awareness uh, for the important for protection of the environment etc so sometimes as social scientists we tend to really focus on formal organizations right Nonprofits, social movement organizations and they are easier to observe than informal actions so i, I always like to think of an iceberg so form, formal associations are like the peaks above the water and then actual citizen action um are it is the actual iceberg underneath so citizen action is often organized less formally by grassroots groups and um, they're characterized by informal gatherings and these communities these middle-class homeowners communities provide a glimpse of the full iceberg they're stable spaces that foster associational life and collective action formal and informal, mundane and claim-oriented, successful and failed, that really have become important parts of Chinese society, Chinese civil society in particular.
0: Given the many facets of this associational life, to what extent is it going too far to think of these communities for all that they're teaching people various things and kind of how to be a homeowner in a lot of ways? is mm-hmm. it too far to think of them as schools of democracy?
1: Um, not at all. If we think about what s- these skills are, it actually, in, even in such an unlikely setting, these skills are civic skills. They are democratic civic skills. They're just kind of occurring in a very different political context. And so these gated communities, um, this this gatedness um, of these like, communities being actually gated off, it does reinforce identity formation and it facilitates associational life. Um, and a, a kind of across, again, across all these locations with homeowners moving in at about the same time, it really created a, a time timeframe um, where everyone was learning about these things at the same time, right? They learned from each other, on how to interpret property rights, deal with developers and property management, turn to one another for information and support, and this really helped residents develop the civic skills they needed for organizing. Um, we some examples um, we can see this via homeowners' early efforts of collective action uh, against property management, and one of The important lessons they learned from interacting with property management is that a collective voice is more powerful and effective in exerting pressure than individual voices. So um, at the time, a lot of actions taken to develop networks, to assert homeowner rights, really contribute to homeowners um, civic education. Um, While, you know, these uh, these communities varied in styles and degrees of engagement um, they are all cultivating community identity developing skills allowed that allowed communities to build capacity for later collective organizing and so civic education hmm. through these schools of democracy be- began um, begin in these middle class spaces allowing individuals to engage in collective decision making when encountering, And processing new challenges.
0: Hmm. So I'd love then to go back and bring forward a thread that we mentioned at the beginning, but haven't yet touched on and bring that in now, which is the fact that you color coded these communities. Um, Mm -hmm. And that wasn't just to keep tell them apart. That was an indication of the extent to which this associational life was able to not just form collective identity, but actually get some of what they wanted um, from protest so can you now take us through the difference between mobilizing for collective action versus organizing sustainable collective action and how uh-huh. this helps us sort of to go from oh they sound similar communities but hang uh-huh. on a second the colors uh-huh. and the outcomes are different can you uh-huh. walk us through this
1: yes So uh, I think definitionally, mobilizing focuses more on involving people with latent interest in an issue without really developing their skills or motivations for action. And organizing, in contrast, is a little bit more transformational. Organizers invest in developing the skills and therefore the capacity of participants to engage with one another to become activists and leaders themselves as well. So in um the community in communities rose and marigolds, so the red and the yellow communities. Successful mobilizing took place, and specifically, the leaders focused on um, encouraging people to protest. The leaders served as mobilizers who prompted action amongst homeowners who were already concerned about trash and incinerator issues. But these leaders didn't really develop or really draw on any existing community strengths. Um, On the other hand, leaders in community meadow and relatedly willow and pine in the same vicinity, um, they went a little bit further. They became organizers as well as mobilizers. These community representatives cultivated homeowners to become activists, creating opportunities for additional representative leaders to emerge within the neighborhood. They were, for example, they were able to steadily expand the number of people involved in the anti-incinerator cause. They um, built a a bunch of task forces within the community allocating responsibilities, facilitating the interactions, and building these relationships. Um, So that's kind of the primary difference. Um, But I want to kind of point to these roles of community leaders, or I I refer to them sometimes as community representatives or community figureheads, um, how and when these community representation, how uh, community leaders emerged really shaped how mobilizing and organizing occurred as well. So in, in Meadow, which is the green community, the emergence of these key representatives early on in the process really helped the organizing pro- uh, the organizing process. And there were um, a lot of concrete plans informed by community relationships and expertise. Obviously, previous informal networks and deep trust within those communities contributed to the success of a core action community, committee, not only in mobilizing homeowners, but also in distributing responsibilities across the community. And when it came, the time came. The time came to act. Leaders were able to engage many homeowners in a range of tasks, allowing them to take ownership of their contributions, such as delivering letters of complaints to officials and government agencies. And additionally, engaging in this process activated more leaders at the time who emerged as representatives during a petitioning event. They did. Um, on the other hand, Rose, which is the red community, had a, an advantage of a tight-knit community net network as well. Um, while the leader was a really effective mobilizer and successfully motivated homeowners to demonstrate publicly, she found it really difficult to sustain collective engagement, which is an, an important element of longer-term organizing. She attributed these challenges to the age and the emotional state of home. Rose homeowners, who she described as angry youths, but um, in 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 all uh, kind of in in actuality, Rose didn't really the leader didn't really leverage community capacity as. Um, the leaders in community meadow did they didn't she didn't seek out experts within the community to help with initial planning or cultivate community committees and task forces to craft a course of action nor access networks of other nearby communities and finally um, in marigold in the final community they also had started with this disruptive public protest. Um, But the lack of experience addressing grievances against property management in Marigold in particular laid little groundwork for community organizing. But of course, they still had these loose friendship networks in the community, and that was sufficient to mobilize homeowners to collectively protest in this public demonstration against an incinerator. Um, But because of these disruptive disruptive actions. The protest was quickly repressed with a lot of people detained. And um, this experience then pushed one of the residents to kind of step up and take on the role of a community representative. But this late arrival to the role likely made him a little bit more more susceptible to government influence later on.
0: Hmm. That makes sense and is really interesting to see kind of how some of these things that seem like small differences um, can nonetheless make a big impact. I'd love to ask next about um, one of the methods of public protest that you mentioned right at the beginning uh, that got you put on a repression in (laughs) hypocrisy's panel, I believe it was, Uh, because this is a really interesting way of protesting that I think isn't necessarily very well known, but I mean, honestly, to me, this in and of itself would be why this is a useful case study to make people more aware of. Um, and we've talked about a whole bunch of other things that are useful too. So, can you please tell us how, why, and with what impact homeowner communities used citizen science as a method of protest?
1: Yes. So, um, like, I was, if I do a super brief Recap, community meadow homeowners, along with their neighbors in Willow and Pine, they began organizing against the incinerator outside their gates through legal institutional channels. And this is, to be honest, the the, probably the most typical protest tactic in China. It it sounds strange that they would go through legal institutional channels, but typically it is a complaint writing, letter writing process where they deliver like a collective letter to government agencies. Um, And so that's a typical tactic. Um, And these communities were able to find volunteers and community professionals to prepare the complex paperwork involved in petitioning and writing letters to agencies. Um, And while these communications were acknowledged by authorities and even prompted visits from officials who came to their communities to share information, homeowners felt that their responses were insufficient in addressing their concerns about the incinerator construction Um, communities uh, rose and marigold however they launched their incinerator resistance um, with publicly disruptive demonstrations they had the ability to mobilize but had weaker planning and community engagement and so the public nature of these disruptions led to government repression resulting in the monitoring arrest and detainment of some homeowners And so as the residents kind of grappled with how to pressure the government more effectively to stop incinerator construction, um, each community turned to a new approach, which is data collection and research. So citizen science um, not only asserts the power of citizens to dispute the authority of expert science, but it also engages citizens in policy debates and decision-making processes for Um, For policies and in an authoritarian setting where dialogue with government officials is especially challenging these communities um, adopted citizen science and the extent to which their engagement in scientific data. um, uh, in, In scientific data collection shifted government responses to their resistance and so. Although the government response to each of each community's presentation of information and data on incinerator pollution varied, um, the community's experiences of engaging in collective citizen science share some common features. So in each community, scientific data offered a way for middle class homeowners, which they are the educated and professional class. They they offered these homeowners um a chance to force some concessions of authority from local uh, and central government agencies. In this way, citizen science served as a tool for homeowners to provide democratic feedback on government decisions in an authoritarian context. Um, And unlike uh, some other forms of resistance that are categorically suppressed, citizen science tends to be well-tolerated in China where science is held in high esteem. And scientific rhetoric is frequently used within the government, um, which often equates science with informational correctness. So the Chinese, um, the CCP, the ruling political party, uh, closely ties science to economic and technological modernization as keys to a strong nation. And so by extension, scientific data um, enjoy a position of legitimacy in china and are generally regarded as an acceptable tool for expressing citizen concern now citizen science also pairs well with the middle class status with homeownership regarded as a sign of economic progress and upward mobility in china and the development of a highly educated middle class citizenry has um, also served as an indication of china's strength At the same time, the attainment of higher education empowers the middle class to understand, interpret, and sometimes dispute expert data provided by the government. And so middle class homeowners are really uniquely well positioned to become citizen scientists. Um, Another benefit of Taking an approach to citizen science is that when citizens present scientific data to government officials, this focus on numbers and objective findings allows both citizens and officials to appeal to reason rather than emotion in their interactions. So for protesters, a focus on rationality means curbing disruptive behavior. For officials, it supports the exchange of ideas with citizens rather than repression. However, um, while science is understood in China to be kind of the search for universal patterns or truths, citizen science is characterized by knowledge in a particular area and experiences tied to addressing a local problem with unique local characteristics. So um, in other words, claims that are based on citizen science are received by government authorities through the lens of any previous experience it has within the with the presenting community so homeowners prior legal claims the prior protest tactics they've used and the style of their leadership can really affect whether whether their claims based on citizen science are accepted co-opted or rejected by government authorities as well regardless of scientific merit of their findings Um, so across these three community sites super briefly homeowners um, Experienced data collection as a really empowering activity. They measured wind direction data. They uh, uh tested water quality related to pollution they even one of them even conducted like a population survey of health problems again not all of this is like without scientific error but this process really taught them how to collect information on their own and really like empower themselves with that information Um, so through doing this citizen scientists homeowners they really gained a sense of authority that they had been unable to access in their previous efforts of pursuing legal channels or taking part in marches and demonstrations. Um, So they overcame these conditions that kept information limited, um, despite laws that require certain information to be made available to the general public. And they had experienced previously a lot of barriers to obtaining documents and information pertinent to incinerator construction. And so with legal channels, institutional channels, and government responses um, just sowing confusion and dissatisfaction, the scientific data collection process really enabled homeowners to become their own experts when they cease to trust government-appointed specialists. Um, and this is really... Key for middle class communities in particular because they were able to pivot successfully to scientific data collection Um, was it was because they had the resources needed to take this approach they had the educational attainment and the professional connections. Um, they were able to interpret complex technical, technical documents and academic papers, sometimes in English. Um, the relationships they had fostered in their communities previously allowed them to mobilize others to help with data collection um, uh, for administering surveys, for example, uh, or small scale research. And so, um, across all communities, the move to scientific data collection and presentation really prolonged dialogue between homeowners and government officials, and homeowners began by drawing on rhetoric from regulatory documents and reports produced by government agencies, such as environmental impact assessments for the planned incinerator projects. Um, And then after that, they conducted their own research and presenting their findings to officials. And in some cases, these efforts really succeeded in winning government um, concessions. And so citizen science really surfaced as an alternative to disruptive protesting and a really powerful boost to arguments made through legal institutional channels.
0: Which is absolutely fascinating. So thank you for taking us through how that worked. If we zoom out a bit from the three communities we've been focusing on, what do you think are some of the broader impact and legacies of these protests? Mm,
1: Yes. So the consequences of community organizing are, I think, reflected in the newly cultivated civic life of middle-class homeowners. Um, Community leaders in urban Beijing's gated housing communities perceived that their organizing efforts made a difference, regardless of what the incinerator outcomes were. Their collective efforts demonstrated that protesting was possible and that they could bring environmental issues to government attention. And more importantly, even though engagement really varied across the communities I looked at, homeowners efforts left behind a legacy of increased environmental awareness, deeper understanding of environmental laws and rights, and insights to how the government operated, civic skills, as well as leadership abilities. The citizen science that occurred in these communities also deepened middle class environmental participation. It required homeowners to research and interpret complex info. And in this way, citizen science promoted meaningful participation and a sense of civic duty. Um, Although these three community sites were unable to converge during their collective action, um, periods, this larger group of urban middle class homeowners cultivated sets of skills and the capacity for organizing locally. And these skills, accompanied by a sense of civic responsibility as Beijing citizens, are then reflected in many homeowners' continued and durable environmental efforts, whether in the form of an environmental company, uh, uh, well-established uh, registered community organization, or even when they recycled or composted at home. I would say, un- Unexpected consequence of homeowners' organizing efforts was their newfound role in environmental education. And this was exemplified by their participation in workshops and talks organized by environmental nonprofit organizations in the city. So not only did these workshops bring homeowners across the three districts of Beijing together for the first time, but they also gave community representatives frequent opportunities to present their organizing experiences and citizen science discoveries. So this platform Um, solidified their roles as citizen environmental specialists, playing a part in in, in educating a larger urban population and incorporating their voices into Beijing's environmental civil society. Um, And this, this delivering of environmental education reinforced community representatives' sense of civic duty as well.
0: That is a quite interesting range of long-term impacts, and again, speaks to the value of the case study. That obviously sort of concludes our discussion on the book, but I do have one final question, if you'll allow it. Um, As you mentioned, this book came out of your dissertation, so obviously the publication of it um, means that it's finally off your desk (laughs) after perhaps an even longer time than books might otherwise be. So is there anything you've got your eye on to work on next, even if it's not on this topic, even if it's not a book that you'd like to preview for us? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it is more, more things about associational life. Um, so I am currently, um, involved in a project. It's called the Civic Life of Cities Project. And, um, this is being hosted at Stanford, um, Center, um, Philanthropy and Civil Society. And we, um, Created like this lab to study the civic life of cities to um, kind of bring together a unique interdisciplinary perspective to the study of nonprofit organizations in particular. We wanted to draw ideas from public policy, sociology, management, urban studies. Um, and we wanted to see how across the across the world in different cities, um, we wanted to kind of look at how, how the nonprofit sector works. Um, how it serves as the connective tissue of the community, how it brings together citizens, government agencies, businesses, um, and these connections that nonprofit um organizations uh, build, these connections reinforce democratic participation and innovation, ability to satisfy community needs, etc. So this was a massive project that is, I would say, the data collection has wrapped up. So um, we're in the process of kind of integrating that data, but um, we use survey and interview methods to uh, kind of understand how some major societal transformations like economic cycles, political climates, evolving ideas on organizational management, even how, how these things shape the sector. Um, and our comparative research include um, seven global cities, which is San Francisco, Seattle, Shenzhen, Singapore, Sydney, Taipei, and Vienna, with big, probably close to 1500 nonprofit organizations in, in, this, uh, in this study. It really provides an insight on the sector's resilience and adaptability across the globe. And specifically, I was involved in um, the data collection process for for Taipei um, in particular. And so I think that's the next exciting thing coming up. And we hope to just kind of understand to what extent um, MPOs or nonprofits have a seat at the table and keep urban policy debates. what kind of democratic government initiatives are being done through the nonprofit sector and just, yeah, different innovations and even things like social media, and their impact on MPO ability to connect with their constituents, et cetera. So that's kind of the next big exciting thing coming up
0: yeah that's a huge project Uh, very exciting thank you very much for previewing it for us and while you work on integrating the data and putting all of that together of course listeners can read the book we've been discussing a spark in the smokestacks environmental organizing in beijing middle-class communities published by columbia university press jean thank you so much for being with us on the podcast thank
1: you so much Thank you.